0: Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our conversation with Professor Alex Wellerstein about America's nuclear defense, who has the authority to use it, and how it all works, including the nuclear football. If you haven't heard part one, we highly recommend that you listen to that one first. It's the episode immediately before this one. Coming up, we pick up where we left off with our discussion about what the nuclear football is, who carries it, and what it does. We also delve into the steps for commencing a nuclear strike, comparative policies, and legislative attempts to officially add people to the decision-making process. We hope you enjoy. We now return to our conversation already in progress. What is the nuclear football and what does it do?
1: the nuclear football is a satchel it's a it's a big it's a 45 pound briefcase and you'll see in pictures of the president you'll sometimes see some military person uh, can be a man can be a woman depending on the president uh, walking behind them with this very large suitcase that is strapped to their wrist and that's the football and it was called the emergency war satchel originally and i believe they started this in the eisenhower administration they certainly had it by the kennedy administration it was meant to allow the president to rapidly order an authorized nuclear war in the event of a surprise attack. And especially if the president is not in Washington, because if the president is in Washington, they have these facilities in the White House and the Pentagon for that sort of thing. But if the president is not there, they're going to need the ability to, one, communicate with their advisors. And so the early satchels had phone numbers you could call over regular lines to get in contact with NORAD and other organizations like that. Today, I believe there's some sort of communication hardware in the briefcase. Um, And then there's also uh, basically war plans. Uh, You can think of it like a menu of options that have already been pre-worked out, vetted by lawyers, are ready for any situation. And so, you know, we don't know what these are, but we can imagine, right? Let's imagine that there's a war plan in there that says, destroy China or, one that says destroy only these particular types of facilities in Russia and then hold back some amount of the arsenal and use it again. These war plans by the 60s and 70s started to give presidents more flexibility because the early war plans under Eisenhower were basically kill 500 million people or do nothing. And it was seen that that was really limiting on what the president's actions might be. So that's really all the football is. It's not that sophisticated from what I understand. It's pretty simple. And uh, it's just the means by which a president can in principle respond very quickly. And that is an an issue that starts in around the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations when the amount of time that they imagine you'd have for uh, of warning of an incoming nuclear attack drops from uh, several hours to arguably several minutes to no time at all. And they start to really worry that if you centralize all that power with the president, you might be slowing the whole thing down in a way and crippling your ability to retaliate.
0: Well, tell us about that person that carries this. So the, the the nuclear football is basically for when the president is on the run, going out to the planes, and he's traveling or she's traveling, you know, to and from. So this is not when they're in a hardened place. Uh, this is when they're when they're out there on their planes doing uh, doing the work the presidents do. So, but this person that accompanies them, what is their job like? Like who are they? They've typically been various from
1: different branches of the military, but they're they're officers, they're they're soldiers. And my understanding, and I haven't been able to talk, I've tried to f- talk to a few of these people <laughs> over time, but they're oh, hardly really? get in touch with. Um, it turns out, because you can identify them. They're not, it's not secret who they are. And you can identify past ones and things like that. And, and uh, the, my understanding is that they they see their job as being sort of enabling the president to do this if they need to do it. That's the job. Whether they would, say, question the president or take a more sort of operational view of what's going on. I'm not sure. And I sort of suspect they won't. That's not really their training. That's not really their disposition. They are a sort of human tool to enable the president to make these kind of decisions. And in a modern context, it would also be, I imagine that they would be involved in trying to make sure that the president is in contact with their advisors, which is part of how this procedure is supposed to go. It doesn't have to you know, if the president wanted to use a nuclear weapon in principle, he doesn't need to talk to advisors, but he's supposed to. And so presumably this person would try and facilitate that sort of sort of normal activity if possible.
0: Well, I would imagine this nuclear football, I'm sorry, I'm so interested in it, but I would imagine that this is top secret, like there's probably a limited amount of people that actually know what it uh, looks like. Have you seen any one of these past devices or have any like direct knowledge or a picture of it?
1: I mean, we, we have pictures of the outside, of course, because it's just a suitcase and you'll see it. And uh, But no, I don't think I've seen any interior. My imagination of it, for whatever that is worth, is the modern technology for communicating in an encrypted way does not have to be large and bulky, but it's probably a little bulkier than your standard civilian cell phones these days, only because it's probably got to be hardened for electromagnetic pulse and all sorts of things like that. But I imagine most of it, honestly, looking like sort of like a phone book of instructions (laughs) and options. Uh, It sounds like a lot of it is paper.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Sometimes the uh, simplest things are the uh, least vulnerable. So, uh, well, let's go through the process of this. Let's say the president, uh, you know, uh, senses out a threat coming back from a trip and has been tipped off by intelligence that there's a big problem coming. So walk us through the practice of initiating a nuclear strike as you understand it to be. And I understand some of this is confidential, but walk us through that process as you understand it to be.
1: The, The way I would put it is, from what I can tell, there are multiple ways to do it. And this is sort of the legacy of those pre-delegation, pre-authorization from Eisenhower forward. Is if you have only one channel for doing anything, the possibility of things breaking down uh, or or being sabotaged by an enemy gets fairly high. So my understanding is there's a few different pathways that a president could take to authorize a nuclear strike. But in principle, at least according to the sort of doctrine that I've looked at, the Air Force doctrine, which is not classified, the president. is meant to essentially set up some sort of communication channel with the uh, chairman of the uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and through them, they will basically convey these orders to the operational commands. And from what I've also scene, you could imagine the president talking directly to the head of strategic command who is in charge of uh, most of our nuclear weapons. But in principle, they're meant to have some kind of conference, right? And this would be ideally on an encrypted channel, though, if that wasn't possible, they can do it on an open channel. And you would want your military representatives in there and your CIA representatives and your secretary of defense, you want all these sort of advisors on there and in principle they're going to be giving the president really good advice about what what the situation is what the options are how to move forward from there and then the president is meant to sort of choose one of the options or come up with their own and that will then be translated into an order there are a lot of questions, of course, that come up when you put this out there, like, well, what what would the situation look like? What if the president wants to do something and everybody says they don't want them? What if you can't get in touch with these advisors? And my sense is that there's deliberately a lot of sort of vagueness in this setup, but that ultimately their role is an advisory role. It's not, they don't, they don't have to be convinced by the president and that the only area where they legally would have any role to say I don't wanna go ahead with this if they don't like what's being done is uh, if it violates the laws of war. Otherwise they might just refuse to pass on orders, but that would be an illegal act. So this is sort of why we talk about this as presidential control. The, the president is the only one who has the power to authorize the use of nuclear weapons. And there really isn't a lot of possibility, at least in our current doctrine or legal setup for somebody to, to veto that kind of order.
0: Well, and how does that compare to uh, other command and control uh, setups that other nations have? So you talk about North Korea, Russia, China, France, Israel, Pakistan, India, and I think the last one is the United Kingdom, right? So how how does the United States and and their avenue for initiating a nuclear strike compare to, I guess, the politics of these other countries?
1: In some of these countries, it's similar in that there's a sort of unitary state power who then makes the decision about whether it's going to be used in the executive branch so that's sort of the british approach with the prime minister it's a very similar system as the united states in china my understanding is that there's actually the head of two different committees is supposed to agree on this but at the moment the head of both of those committees is the same person so it's the head of state so it's functionally identical in Russia, and again, some of this is clouded in, in rumor and, and speculation and things like this, but in Russia, apparently there are three people who have the ability to initiate a nuclear strike and two of them must agree. And so this is a way of spreading that authority around. And it's sort of the equivalent of basically, of course, Putin, head of state, but also the sort of equivalent to the secretary of defense and the equivalent of the head of the military, more or less, right? chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. So in principle, this is a sort of somewhat decentralized, even though it's still only a couple people, but you do have to get more than one person to agree. In France, only one person, the the head of state, can initiate the order. However, it then has to be sort of translated by somebody below them and sort of approved uh, by them. And so that's a sort of weak veto possibility if that person can not do it or something like that. Uh, Israel, apparently, uh, from what we know, and of course, this is very sketchy since Israel does not even admit having nuclear weapons, but from what my colleague uh, Avner Cohen has found, uh, they need two people to agree to an order, a secretary of defense sort of person and uh you know the head of state uh, the the bottom line is that there are other ways to do it and you can imagine having at least one other person in on this none of these states have sort of like a complicated body of people. It's it's at most three people that I've seen who are involved in these kinds of decisions. And that sounds about right from what we know about how organizations work and things like that. I don't think a solution that requires you getting 30 people involved is very likely to be adopted by anybody. But the idea that it's sort of one or nothing the way I put it is if the Russians and the Israelis are able to spread that power out a little bit. I mean, I can't think of any nations more paranoid than the both of them. So, you know, we, we might be able to get away with it ourselves.
0: So, what are some of the arguments for the rapid response? So, simplifying the chain of command that initiates a strike. And you know, obviously, during the Soviet Union days, uh, there was uh, definitely concerns with the Cold War and a first strike coming from Russia. But in today's world, you know, what, what's the argument that you have to keep those responses clear of communication issues, clear of clutter, clear of, uh, I guess, even uh, uh, you know, as you said, electronic magnetic pulse and EMP weapon. You know, you want to get to your uh, you want to get to your military as quickly as you can. So, what's the argument that the the armed force forces make for keeping the chain of command simple.
1: Well, it's interesting with the armed forces. They they initially are of course why the the system gets set up because the Truman was wary of them making decisions like this, but they've really adopted the idea that they don't want to make this decision. They've sort of th- their culture has dramatically changed over this period, I believe. And I don't think they have any interest in making the sort of what they would see as the political decision, the policy decision about using nuclear weapons. Their job is to sort of enable it. But the main arguments, um, one of them is speed. And whether that's relevant these days or necessary is something that can be open to discussion. And also whether you could build a system that would have fallbacks to it. So, for example, if you had two people who were needed and one of them couldn't be in contact, you you know, you couldn't get through to them, you could imagine a system that said, well, if you can't get through to them, then only one person, right? It's easy enough to sort of imagine an adaptive system.
0: All right, last question for you. So, as I understand that, there's been some recent legislative attempts to add maybe some additional people to the decision making process instead of just relying on one person, the president in the case of the United States. And so, can you tell us a little bit about that proposed legislation?
1: There's been a few different laws proposed over the years that would alter this. None of them ever went anywhere, but they range from either saying the United States cannot use nuclear weapons first without congressional approval, or that the president cannot use nuclear weapons first without some sort of congressional agreement to it. And it's a way for Congress to try and reinject itself into the process. I don't think these particular formulations are likely to necessarily fix this issue. And I don't think that you're likely to get a situation in which the military would ever co-sign any kind of agreement where you had to round up some congressional committee first, or even if it was a subset of Congress, obviously. But I do think that we have a system that could be altered and you could imagine ways of making it a little bit more robust.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Wellenstein. It was a real pleasure having you on. Oh, Happy to be here. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. And also we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website, legaltalknetwork.com. And one more thank you to our producer, Molly McDonough, who came up with today's topic and also to our production team for working their magic. Awesome as always. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.